Today we conclude our series on the parables of Jesus with what is perhaps the best known of the parables along with that of the Good Samaritan, that is the parable of the prodigal son. One could argue that we should have started our study here, but I hope by ending our study here today and by looking at this parable, things will sort of come together that we've been looking at the past few weeks. It is the longest parable of Jesus recorded in the Gospels. It has the most dialogue. Uh, Follow along, listen as I read, beginning in verse number uh, 11 of Luke chapter 15. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a far distant, or for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death? I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to his father, or said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older brother was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you killed the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, You are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. It's an amazing story. It is the third of three parables recorded here in Luke chapter 15. And each parable deals with something that has been lost. The first one is a lost sheep. The second is a lost coin. And finally here we have the lost son. What is the context of of this parable? You may remember as we've gone through this that oftentimes Jesus gave parables in response to a question or to some dilemma. Um, The Good Samaritan parable was given when somebody asked him, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And then, love the Lord your God, love your neighbor. Who is my neighbor? And then Jesus spoke the parable. 
The friend who came at midnight was in response to, Lord, teach us how to pray. And the unforgiving servant was given an answer to the question, how many times should I forgive my brother? Up to 70 times 7. And then finally, the rich fool, the parable of the rich fool, Jesus gave when he was asked by someone, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But in our passage today, this is not the case. It isn't that somebody asked a question, but there was a very specific situation that arose. If you look at the first two verses here of chapter 15, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And then we read in verse number three, then Jesus told them this parable. By the way, I find it interesting that it is a singular parable, and yet we hear three parables. They all have to deal with something that is lost. Something worth noting here about the society into which Jesus was born. First of all, it was seen as exclusive. Certainly, if you look at the Old Testament laws, there are things that are clean. There are things that are unclean, not only food, but even people. And so the unclean things you want to avoid because they contaminate you um, if you're clean. And so you want to somehow stay away from them. Just a side note, um, this is one of the things that Jesus shows how the kingdom of God is so different, radically different from what the Jews were thinking. In the Old Testament, that which is unclean, if it touches something clean, it contaminates it, it taints it. In the kingdom of God, Jesus is willing to touch those who are unclean and he heals them. And so, if you wish, it is not the unclean which has the upper hand. It is the Son of God who is clean and makes all things clean. But anyway, the way Jews were taught to think was to make distinctions between things that were clean and things that were unclean, between people who were clean and those who were unclean. And certainly, you have Jews and you have the Gentiles. That, that's a no-brainer. The Gentiles, I mean, they're obviously unclean. But even within the Jewish nation, among the Jews themselves, there were those who were seen as, yeah, you're Jewish, but not quite good enough because of the things that you do. And here we have the tax collectors, at least in the NIV, sinners in quotation marks. These are people who are reviled by others. Second issue is, how are we to treat those who are outsiders? If there are boundaries between us, if we see ourselves as clean, and those who are unclean, what are we supposed to do? How am I supposed to interact with someone who is unclean? Well, the Pharisees made it very clear how you were supposed to do this. You weren't supposed to deal with them at all because you were clean and they were unclean and so you were to avoid them. And we see this in the parable of the Good Samaritan where you have a priest and a Levite who refuse, if you wish, to cross a boundary to help someone who has been ambushed because who knows who this person is. Obviously, there's something wrong with him. And rather than transgress a boundary, they choose not to help him at all. Let me read to you from Luke chapter 7. Now, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. He went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, 
he would know who is touching him and what kind of sinner or what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. And apparently Jesus was not concerned about boundaries, but the Pharisees definitely were. We see this again and again in the stories, but also in the parables of Jesus, the parable of the great banquet in which a man has prepared a banquet. He has invited friends. They refuse to come. And so he sends his servants out to get, if you wish, the riffraff of society and to bring them into his house. The Pharisees put a boundary between them and others, and Jesus is regularly walking across this boundary. He is eating with sinners and with tax collectors. He is welcoming them. He is eating with them. I've mentioned this before, but there is a New Testament scholar who argues that the reason that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified was because he ate with the wrong people. He broke social convention. You just were not supposed to do that. And by teaching and doing wonderful things and being seen as a prophet and yet eating with sinners, he was, if you wish, contaminating his mission and therefore the Pharisees had to do something about it. It is worth noting that this chapter begins or opens with the Pharisees grumbling and it closes with the older brother also grumbling. One of the most significant things about the first two parables is that the things that are lost are not blamed for being lost. The sheep, we don't know why it's lost. Maybe it wandered off on its own. The coin obviously did not sort of jump out of whatever it was in to hide itself. There is no blame assigned to them. Um, And yet, the third thing that is lost, the son, we obviously would blame him because he is the one who left on his own. It's an amazing story. What is the historical context? And let me just give to you here a a list of things, and then hopefully they will fit in as we go along. Um, There are a number of things to consider. First, the idea of a rebellious son who wastes his father's wealth is not an an idea unique to Jesus. It's not unique to the parable of the prodigal son. We find it in pagan literature as well. It was seen not only among the Jews, but among Gentiles as well, as a crime to do what this young man did. Um, And in fact, uh, in some laws, the, the father was entitled to disown his son for having treated him so disrespectfully. To disrespect one's parents, particularly one's father, was an offense that could land you in prison. In the Mosaic law, it's a bit more harsh than that. It could end up with you being put to death. In Deuteronomy 21, if a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who does not obey his father and mother and will not listen to them when they discipline him, his father and mother shall take him, take hold of him and bring him to the elders at the gate of the town. They shall say to the elders, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a profligate and a drunkard. Then all the men of the town shall stone him to death. You must purge the evil from among you. All Israel will hear of it and be afraid. One could make the case that, in fact, the younger brother should have been stoned to death for what he did. Problems regarding inheritance were common in the ancient world, and we actually studied one. The parable of the rich fool was in response to a question, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. The older brother was supposed to get twice as much as anyone else because he was to care for the parents. So in this particular story, the estate should have been divided into three parts, two-thirds of it going to the older brother and then one-third to the younger brother. 
Another thing, famines were frequent in the ancient world and oftentimes quite severe. Um, And so when we read that a famine came on the land, that's not something unusual. It's something that happened quite often. Taking care of pigs, we would know, at least from a Jewish perspective, was something one would not want to do. But even in the pagan world, those who raised pigs or those who took care of pigs were viewed with disdain. Pigs were oftentimes fed something uh, known as carob pods. Um, It was used as fodder for animals, and humans could also eat it. And apparently in our story, this is what the younger brother is reduced to. He is eating what pigs eat. Two more things. Um, One, I think it goes right by us. But the idea of an older man running in the ancient world was seen as, as unbecoming. This is something that elderly people did not do. Uh, first of all, it was shameful to show your legs, but also it's, it just seems so undignified. If anyone is going to run, it should be the younger people running to the older people, not the older people running to the younger. And yet we see this father running out to his son and hugging him. And one last thing, kill the fattened calf. In the ancient world, meat was usually eaten only on special occasions. They didn't have refrigeration. Um, and so if you killed an animal, you had to eat You had to eat it all before it went bad. Um, And so oftentimes this was done when you had a lot of people, when you had a festive occasion, a banquet, and this is what happens when the sun comes back. So let's look at the parable, which is familiar enough, I think, to us. Um, As familiar as, as it is, we may miss some important things. First of all, how does the parable begin? There was a man who had two sons. We tend to focus on the younger son. That's why it's called the parable of the prodigal son. But as I hope to show you, that the focus, in fact, is misplaced. It should not be on the younger son. It should be on the father. The younger son does the unthinkable. He tells his father, give me my share of this state. And the father does so. For the father to do so, it meant he had to liquidate his possessions, which probably would include land, uh, animals, uh, tools. Uh, he would have to sell in order to become liquid and to be able to give it to his younger son and say, here, this is yours. Whether or not somebody got the inheritance before the parents died is not clear because if the firstborn gets a double portion because he's going to take care of the parents, then obviously he gets the inheritance before the parents die. Um, And so uh, that we're not clear about. But I think in any culture in the ancient world, for a son to demand from his father give me my inheritance now, would have been seen as offensive. One could make the case that the son violated the fifth commandment. He did not honor his father. He leaves home shortly after this and goes off to a far country, a distant country, uh, probably among the Gentiles. He wastes what he has been given there. He squanders his wealth in living, wild living. It's interesting, in studying this parable, we are not given details as to what the younger brother did. It leaves much to our imagination. All we are told is that he squandered his inheritance. It was some years ago, when I was preaching through the Gospel of Luke, that we came to this passage, and there was someone sitting right here, I remember who it was, and as we were going through this, I noticed that she wasn't paying attention to me, that she kept sort of flipping back and forth in her Bible, And afterwards, we talked about it, and she said, you know, her whole life she had heard stories about the prodigal son. 
how that he left home, he went to a far country, and he had all this money, so he had all these friends, and they were hanging out with him, and they were partying, and then when he lost the money, and all the money's gone, then his friends left him, and she was looking for that in the parable. And it isn't there. We are given a bare-bones description that he squandered, he squandered what he had in wild living, period. That's all we are told. But we've seen this with the parables that they tend to be thin, that they're not they're not elaborate and they leave, in, in fact, much to the imagination. I think if Jesus had told us how the young man spent his money, how he wasted it, then certain people in the crowd would say, well, that's not me. This has no application to me whatsoever. And the focus would be on the son and what he did rather than where it should be. And that is on the father. The son runs out of money and he is reduced to feeding pigs and eating what they eat. He comes to his senses and he decides to return home. He has a speech prepared in which he will say to his father, I'm returning not as a son, but I want to be your servant because at least I will have something to eat. The next part I find very moving, and if you look at it again, is in verse... um, beginning in verse number 20. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. You'll notice he doesn't get through the whole speech. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. It is amazing. An amazing story. But not everyone is happy. The elder brother, who's been working while his brother was out spending his money, hears, he comes to the house and he hears that there's music and dancing. He asks a servant what's going on, and he is told that his father is celebrating because his brother has returned, because he has him back safe and sound, the servant says. The older brother is angry and refuses to join the celebration. And so in the same way that the father went out to meet the prodigal son, the father now goes out to the older brother. The source of his anger is revealed here. He says, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. I've always found it intriguing. How did the older brother know that this is what the younger brother spent the money on? Or is, in fact, has he just imagined that, well, since he's left home, this is probably what he's been doing? And the father tells him, You are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So what does it all mean? What is the point? What is being said here? Well, the context is a division in society, if you wish, between a younger brother and an older brother. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law are the older brother. They are the ones who have been faithful to God's word. On the other hand, you have the tax collectors and the sinners. They are those who have squandered what God has given them. 
I think in a larger context, we could see this as a division between the Jews and the Gentiles. That the Jews are the ones who have the word of God, who have kept God's word, and the Gentiles, on the other hand, have squandered what God the Creator has given them. They have done so in sinful living. We are all made in the image of God. In that sense, we are, in a loose sense, sons of God. And the Gentiles have squandered what they have been given. Yet in any case, whether it is the Gentiles or the tax collectors and the sinners, they come home in humility. They recognize that they have done wrong. So what is the point? What is it that Jesus is trying to get across in this parable? Well, I think to answer that question, we have to answer another question. Who is the main character in this parable? As one author has argued, this is really an unnecessary question because we need all three characters. We need the father, we need the younger son, and we need the young, or the elder son as well in order for this parable to make any sense. What is the goal of a parable? And now let's review a bit what we've seen in this series. What is the purpose of parables? The purpose is to change behavior and to create disciples of Jesus Christ. But what's the best way to do that? If you want someone to change their behavior, if you want someone to be a follower of Jesus, how do you accomplish that? Well, I think you have one of two stories, uh, one of two ways to go. One is you say, this is what you're supposed to do. You give a list of do's and don'ts. The other is you tell them who God is. God the Father, the Father of Jesus Christ. You tell them what God's rule is like in the kingdom of God. This is the way things are. This is the way God does things. I'm convinced that it is the second that Jesus tried to do in his living and in his teaching. To demonstrate, to live out who God is and what the rule of God looks like. I think we fail to see that, though, oftentimes. And so we mistakenly give this parable the wrong name. We focus on the wrong character. We call it the parable of the prodigal son. When, in fact, the focus, I think, or the main character, is the father and not the sons. And, again, just to review briefly what we saw when we began this series, about the the parables that Jesus taught, we see that they are brief, brief, they are marked by simplicity, if you're, if you're staging this, there, you only have two characters on the stage at any one time, even in this story. We have three main characters, and we have the man who hired the younger son to feed pigs. We have the servant who the master, who the father tells, go out and kill the fattened calf. We have the servant that the younger or the elder brother talks to, but we only have two people on the stage at any one time. It's kept uh, very simple. The parables are about human beings. They are fictional descriptions taken from everyday life. And so when Jesus tells this parable, people might have been said, yeah, that's like so-and-so down the road. His son did that. They are engaging, but they contain elements of reversal. We would not expect this. We're glad that the younger brother comes home. That's that's wonderful. That's heartwarming. And I can remember as a child um, in the Philippines that uh, there was a family that would take me home uh, for Sunday lunch after church. And their youngest son had run away. And they didn't know where he was. And I happened to be there one Sunday afternoon when he came home. And it was like this. It's the younger son coming home. Yes. 
That we get. But the older brother being unhappy about it and not wanting to come in and the father having to sort of go out and persuade him that this is the right thing to do, uh, this is certainly not what I don't think we saw this coming if we didn't know the story. Above all, Jesus' parables are theocentric. They, God, Jesus is trying to tell people, this is who God is. And this is what the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is like. We have also seen something that's important for our purposes here, that the parables are not to be read as theologies. We are not to read the parable of the prodigal son and sort of derive a theology from that. Certainly there are theologies, there's doctrine in it from which we can learn. But if we're not careful, we may in fact create a doctrine and take it far beyond what Jesus intends simply because he's trying to get something across in the story and and we sort of go in a different direction. Let me give you an example. Beginning in the Middle Ages, and it continues to the present day, in many debates between Muslims and Christians, more often than not, Muslims will bring up the parable of the prodigal son in their debate. And this, again, in the Middle Ages, in Arabic, we have Christians and Muslims who are debating, and we have this written down. They argue that this is the Christian faith, that Jesus, in fact, was a Muslim prophet. Because they see here in this parable a story, a message of forgiveness that is based on behavior rather than on a savior. So the son comes to himself. He returns on his own with no assistance from the father. There is no cross. There is no suffering. There is no incarnation, no mediator. Muslims reject, they believe in Jesus, but they reject the Christian idea of Jesus as the suffering savior. They don't see it in this parable, and therefore they say it is not in the gospel. It is not what Jesus intended to convey. What they've done is they've taken a part of this parable and they've taken it, they've stretched it out of shape to create a theology that Jesus was not trying to convey. And I think they miss uh, the purpose, uh, the issue of the parable, and that is the grace of God. So what is the purpose of this parable? Is it to describe the sinfulness of human beings like the younger brother? Is it to describe the sinfulness of religious people, the elder brother? Uh, Timothy Keller has written a brilliant book in which he deals extensively with the elder brother. He shows, he argues that the parable exhibits two kinds of sin. The sin of the lawbreaker, that's the younger brother, and the sin of the law keeper, the elder brother because he was at fault as well. The younger brother breaks the relationship by failing to fulfill the expectations of family and society. But the elder brother breaks the relationship while fulfilling those same expectations. But the title of Keller's book points to the purpose and the point of this parable. The title of his book is The Prodigal God. We tend to think in terms of the prodigal son who squandered what he had been given. Prodigal means that which is characterized by profuse, lavish, or even wasteful expenditure. The father in this parable is the one who is prodigal. He is the one who is lavish, who profusely, even wastefully spends on his younger son who has wasted what he has been given. It is he who runs to meet the younger brother. It is he who goes out to the sulking elder brother and pleads with him. 
I find it interesting that one of the earliest heretics that we know of in the church was Marcion, who was a bishop and became a heretic. He decided to re-edit the Bible, and what he did was he cut out all of the Old Testament, um, as well as parts of the New Testament, because he argued that the God of the Old Testament and Jesus of the New Testament are, in fact, not the same. And in editing the, the Gospel of Luke, he cut out the parable of the prodigal son, as we know it. Because he says this sounds too much like the God of the Old Testament, that the younger son has a home, he leaves home, and then he comes back. He's like, that just that smacks of the Old Testament. And so he cut it out. Uh, interestingly enough, as the, even though he was a heretic and in error, he did understand the implications of the parable, that in fact it is about the father and not about the son. It is about the prodigal God, the God who is gracious to his son. Kenneth Bailey, who is a missionary in the Middle East for several decades, has written extensively about this parable. And it's, it's fascinating work. If you go to Amazon, you can look him up. Kenneth E. Bailey has, has done some great work. What I find fascinating is how he compares this with Psalm 23. He sees the parable, this parable here, as sort of illustrating what we find in the 23rd Psalm. That God is a shepherd who restores his sheep. If you know the 23rd Psalm, he restoreth my soul. Well, that means something was lost and it has to be restored. God prepares a banquet in the presence of my enemies. Well, that's women's work. And so we have the second parable of the woman looking for the lost coin. God hosts a costly banquet. It is God who prepares a table for the psalmist. Ordinarily, it is the worshiper who must prepare something to worship God. And the psalmist is brought back. He is restored to dwell in the house of God forever. And so in Luke 15, Jesus is the shepherd who finds and restores the sheep. He is the woman who finds her coin. Jesus invites the son to a costly banquet. And the two sons are invited to dwell in their father's house permanently. It's amazing. Beyond all this, I think it should be clear that what Jesus is telling his listeners is who God is and what his character is. He is the father who welcomes home his son, even acting in what might be seen as an unseemly way. This is, this is un- inappropriate. Sir, you should not be doing this. He runs out to meet him. He throws a banquet for him. He pleads, he is the father who pleads with those who think that they are owed something, who think that they are better than others who fail to recognize how much in need of grace they are. So while Jesus would eat with the tax collectors and the sinners, he also ate with Pharisees. He is there for the younger son. He is there for the older son. This is what Jesus is trying to convey in his parables. We've seen that the parables are, in fact, theocentric. But I think we miss this because of the names oftentimes that we give these parables. And we tend to think that they are about us. So when we read about the prodigal son, we think about ourselves and our sinfulness. That is not in and of itself wrong, but we miss something very important. And that is, it's primarily about God and the Father. It is not about us. Think for a moment over the parables that we've looked at in this series. And what has been their focus? The parable of the friend who came at midnight. God is the one who is there, who is there always for his people, even when it might seem as an inopportune time. 
the parable of the unforgiving servant. God is the one who forgives a ridiculous amount. You remember the 10,000 talents, 200,000 years of labor, and the master forgives it. This is who God is. The parable of the rich fool. God is the one who, in fact, does exist, even though the rich fool acts as though he does not, and who knows what is going on and who will just, who will judge justly. The parable of the one lost sheep and the one lost coin is God is one who cares for each individual, each lost person, and seeks for them, and he rejoices when he finds them. The parable of the great banquet, as we find in the Gospel of Luke, is God is the one who reaches out across social boundaries and he brings people in as his honored guests. Or the parable of the unjust judge. God is the one to whom we pray. He is not the uncaring, unrighteous judge. He is merciful, he is patient, and eager to assist his people. This is the God that we worship. And Jesus tells us these parables that we might know this. And knowing who God is and that we are now his children, we might live the way that we should. You see, the parables are not about us. But it is interesting that we try to make them about us. We give them names about us. In almost every parable, if you think about it, the focus is wrongly put by the title that we give it. Jesus wants to tell us, this is who God is. This is who you follow. This is who you worship. And as we gather to worship, it is great to be reminded of who he is. If we're not careful, however, even as we gather to worship, we might think that, look at what we are doing. We have come to worship God, and our focus Our emphasis gets misplaced. I thank God for these parables, for the time we've had to study them, and I pray by God's grace that our focus has been, our emphasis has been rightly placed where it should be, on God. Let's pray together. Father, it seems that ever since Eden, the story always seems to be about us, or at least that's how we tell the story. Even when we talk of our own sinfulness, it's about us. I thank you for the Lord Jesus and his life, his teaching, how he came into the world to reveal you to us. And he did so in ways that perhaps might seem unbecoming by telling stories by telling these parables. This is the way that you communicate to us. And in doing so, he tells us who you are, how gracious you are, how ridiculous you are in your forgiveness, how you come running after us in what might seem to be an unseemly and inappropriate way to do things. But because of your great love for us, this is what you have done. We bow before you in humility for the greatness of who, greatness of who you are and what you have done in our lives. May you be at the center of things and not ourselves. I thank you that we could gather today to worship you. 
we pray for Titus and Scott as they travel, that you would give them safety, and for Mike and Jesse as well. Pray for this congregation as he and I are away. You would watch over them as you always have and keep them safe from harm. Now we ask that your spirit and your grace would go with us as we leave this place today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.